Hello, free thinkers. I'm Mickey Z, and I welcome you to Post Woke, the New York City-based podcast where we practice intellectual self-defense. You know, I blocked everything that happened out of my mind for so long. Like I was just, like I said, trying to get through the day. So um, it wasn't until I started working, I was working at a summer camp and, you know, the other counselors were great and really sweet to the kids, but like I, they would flock to me and tell me all these things. And I just started to realize like I understand these kids on a different level that I don't think many people do. And I kind of started to make the connection and I had, you know, already I was in grad school already for counseling and it started to really hit me that like I have something that I can offer. This isn't just a career, you know. That was Monica Lind, a licensed professional counselor based in Pennsylvania. Monica is a survivor of the $23 billion a year troubled teen industry and now does her part to change this corrupt, abusive, and sometimes deadly system. We will talk about that and so much more right after this word from our sponsor. Z here, and I'm asking you to offer some support for a project that I've been running for nearly six years. It's called Helping Homeless Women NYC. And as the name implies, I've been getting out there on the streets for, like I said, nearly six years to offer direct relief to some of the most vulnerable yet fiercest women you'll ever want to meet. If you check the show notes, you will find a direct link for how to donate at GoFundMe. If you're interested in becoming a Patreon patron or in ordering uh, restaurant gift cards directly from my wish list, shoot me an email and I'll send you that information. But I'm just requesting some support, thanking you in advance and asking you no matter what to please share the link far and wide. Now, let's get back to the show. The troubled teen industry receives an estimated $23 billion of annual public funds, and many residential facilities operate as a for-profit organization. They are run sometimes like prisons or worse. Kids are often kidnapped and handcuffed to be taken there. They have a recidivism rate as high as 80% and hire untrained staff members who operate with little or no oversight or accountability. Monica Lynn knows all about this industry from the inside and is now dedicated to creating desperately needed change on the outside. Monica, welcome to Post Woke. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. I'm going to give you a little intro here and just let you take, take, take us where you want to take us. But it's estimated that about Anywhere from 120,000 to 200,000 young people reside right now in some type of group home, residential treatment center, boot camp, or correction facility. So how does someone like you, for example, wind up there as a teen? And how did we wind up with such a cruel system in place that is virtually invisible? 
So I think that there's many reasons. I mean, to start off, people don't like teenagers. They're difficult to deal with. They're moody. They're pushing boundaries. And, you know, they're kind of trying to figure out who they are. And in the right environment, I think that they thrive. People understand, okay, they're just a moody teenager and they can deal with it. But in, you know, if you have like an authoritarian parent, that doesn't mesh well. And not only that, but even, you know, in the, in the system, so you have the children use system is what we call it, where I'm from. That's the government agency that can take custody of your children, place them in foster care, things like that. They okay. also don't like dealing with teenagers because they're difficult. A little, you know, a little five-year-old, you can pick them up and put them in a chair. A teenager yeah. has a little more autonomy than that. So, and so oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, so there's, you know, various ways that they can end up in places like this. It can be, you know, things that are concerning, such as drug use or theft, violence, things like that. But it can be even mental health issues, you know, a kid's cutting or an eating disorder, depression, suicide attempts, running away from home, even things like coming out as homosexual to a family that doesn't agree with that or wanting to change their gender, things like that. So to make sure that I'm clear, the system that's in place, to use the example you just gave, if a child, a teenager, sat down with their parents and said, I want to explain to you that I'm not heterosexual, in whatever direction that goes in, the parents in this system we have have the power to contact one of these facilities and send the their teenager there against their will. Am I correct there? Yes. Wow. And you've explained that when they come to get the teen, they do expect resistance or even running away. So it can be done in a way that virtually replicates a kidnapping. Yes. They'll put handcuffs on the kids. They'll hold them down, drag them out of their houses. Some of them come in the middle of the night. Now, it's obviously that's not always the case. Sometimes they can talk kids into thinking that this will be good for them and the kids are going by their own free will, but other times it does resemble a kidnapping. Wow. So now perhaps, and I'm saying that somewhat facetiously, if these facilities were serving a noble purpose of truly, truly, truly helping these teens discover who they are as they move towards adulthood, maybe some people could look the other way at, at what everything you just described. I'm personally not me, but I could see that. But based on what I've read and based on what I've heard from you, this is far from the case. When they get to these facilities, it's not really about treatment. If anything, they are being controlled very similarly to the way um, adults are controlled within a prison or jail. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, a lot of them, they have maybe best way to put it, programs in place for these kids to get treatment, but they're understaffed or their staff's not qualified. And a lot of times they'll be like, oh, we're not, you know, we're not having our therapy group tonight. We're just going to, you know, read the newspaper or something like that. So even when they do have, I think maybe there may be some places with good intentions, it's not executed. So now please feel free I, I want to give you room to decide how much or how little you want to say that when you're answering any of these questions to interject stuff from your own experience here, because um, obviously you, you can you can see this from a, a point of view that m- 
a fair amount of people, most people lack. But so when the teens wind up in these places, they're, they're, they wind up sort of like prisoners. But as you said, the, only a small majority of them did anything that even resembled a crime. So, um, and even if there's not a whole lot of actual treatment, is there a whole lot of medication of these teens? Oh yeah, um, you know I can't I can't speak for every single facility, but every single one that I've seen or that I was in, you're put on medication, and not just you know something maybe not drastic, but like lithium. I mean, when was the last time you heard of a kid being put on lithium just in a regular environment? I don't hear of it too often, but in these places, I mean, these kids are lithium and then because of lithium, then you, then you get depressed. So then they put you on antidepressants. So you're on a whole host of medication. Not only that, they use tranquilizers if you're acting out. Now I'm not, it's a little hazy from what I remember, but I know in like a, um, you know, hospital setting, they'll use tranquilizers and stuff like that. I'm not so sure about the regular group homes, but I mean, the point is they're, they're just completely medicated. It doesn't matter why you're there. So it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy where even if a teen arrives there displaying a very limited number of what they perceive as negative behavior, once they're once they're treated like prisoners and then medicated for one thing and then medicated for the side effects of the first medication, they're, the self-fulfilling prophecy is they're going to then display what appear to be symptoms of something that justifies them being there. So they're not going to get discharged. And I would assume a big part of that would be because these places get paid per head. Like they're not in the business of discharging a kid unless there's unless their family comes to get them or the kid ages out so their the, their motivation the incentive for them is to keep them there at all costs because it's a financial incentive yeah absolutely and i mean i think going back to the medication you put kids on high doses of lithium at untherapeutic levels they're going to act like zombies so they're going to get in trouble for things like not getting out of bed on time, being moving slow when their showers are timed. I mean, there's all these rules that they have to follow. It's very hard to do when you feel like a zombie. And, you know, on the flip side, some of these antidepressant medications, I know back when I was in these places, I was on one that's illegal to give to children now. And the reason is, is it gives you insomnia for, and I'm not talking you can't sleep at night. I'm talking you can't sleep for days. Imagine what happens to your behavior when you're in an environment like this and you can't control your emotions because you have your, you know, your body's full of these dangerous medications. So it completely affects their behavior in a negative way. Wow. It just sounds like, it sounds like a dystopian movie from the seventies, but it's, this is not fiction. This is reality. And leads me to ask you, cause I've heard you discuss this before, you know, how did this become the dominant paradigm for kids? And is it true that this is sort of grows out of the creation of a um, cult um, for 50, 60 years ago um, called Synanon and what could you tell us about that foundational beginning and how that has influenced what is still done to teens as we, you and I are talking here today? Yeah, so um, Cult Synanon, for those that aren't familiar, it was this guy. His name was 
I think his name was Chuck Dietrich. He was an alcoholic. He got sober and he wanted to start his own program because he had been a part of AA and they were, you know, from what I remember, they were like kicking him out because he's going up there and he's talking for two hours straight and that's not how it works. So he said, I'm going to start my own program. No, no credentials, no experience. And he got some people together and he started using what's called attack therapy where the patients are verbally abused by staff and other patients and it kind of became a form of social control that exposed their weaknesses. So, like, he'd do crazy things, like he'd make the women shave their heads, he'd make married people get with different partners, he'd force vasectomies, abortions. Um, it basically turned into these brainwashings, which they admitted to this. And this is where, you know, back in the day, orphanages were for kids that had no parents. And it slowly became a place for kids to go that parents didn't want or parents lost custody of whatever. And so they started to use these to control the kids because if you think back to the Stanford prison experiment, anytime you put people in a position of power that, you know, aren't properly trained, there's no checks and balances, they become complete tyrants And I think part of that, especially in working with teenagers, is without the proper skills, teenagers are hard to control. So they go through these crazy lengths to just have the, you know, they want to show up to work and they want to have the kids just do what they need to do and not argue, not get moody, all these things. So it becomes like a power trip. And um, that's kind of where this model was taken from this cult. And it just kind of infiltrated the system. And that's kind of how it all got started from my understanding it's it's just astonishing to me not that the cult existed because we live in a world where cults are um frighteningly common and cultic mentality itself is frighteningly common but that it's not something that the average person has heard of synanon where you would say oh there's a, a blueprint from which we can build other programs from it and um, you had mentioned to me when we were emailing that, as far as you know, it's no longer, it's not even something that exists except in Germany. So it's like the a big chunk of the world has caught on that like, oh, no, this isn't the way to do it. But the word hasn't sprinkled down to these um, facilities, which makes me think follow the money to some degree, because it, if you ran one of these facilities, why would you say, oh, this system that we're using here is flawed and, in fact, quite dangerous for children. And I know that every now and then we get a peek into it. And um, I, there was a, a story in 2020 about a teenage girl who died at a boarding school in Florida. And the, the Florida Department of Children and Families did do a study in which they said there were inadequate supervision and medical neglect, but they dropped any criminal criminal charges. The, the place closed, but they dropped it. But it just seems astonishing to me that we could keep hearing these stories. And I wonder how much of it goes back to what you said of like this sort of general demonizing of teenagers. Yeah. I mean, I had someone, you know, the interview that I did recently, I had someone comment and say, well, these aren't good kids. Mm. They're, they're bad kids. There's a reason that they're there as if they should be treated this way. And then someone else said something about, um, you know, cause, and we might get into this more, but basically they lie to you about when you're leaving and then you think that you're leaving and then they take it away. And so kids will have 
meltdowns. They think that they're going home after years of being away <sighs> from friends or school. And it's, you know, it's mental abuse. And someone said, well, they have to do that because they need, if you can't handle disappointment, then how are you going to handle the real world? And I'm like, Oof. it's not okay to purposely lie to kids to get them to, like, that's not going to do anything. That's just going to break their spirit. And that's kind of the whole foundation of these places is tough love. Break them down to build them up into who you want them to be. And life doesn't work that way. Kids are going to learn to fake it out of fear, whatever it is, then they're going to get out in the real world and they're not going to be able to handle life. Wow. That's just infuriating to hear. And, and I, I wish I could say I was totally surprised that you were getting comments from randos that, that um, were endorsing this, but it just demonstrates your point. It, It really emphasizes your point that this effective conditioning of demonizing um, children is really working because I, you know, I'm not trying to put myself up, but if, when I first heard you now, I was, I was a little bit familiar with this, but when I first heard you, um, my, I just was going from outrage to sorrow. Like you just feel terrible for these kids. And then, and even like you, like you say, you can almost understand the situation that a young undertrained counselor is being put into, not justifying their cruelty, but they're, they're not qualified to be there. And then that, as you mentioned, that dynamic kicks in where they have more power. They don't have the knowledge, but they're going to exercise the power anyway. And so if you don't mind, could you just talk a little bit about what you experienced firsthand? You don't have to give any specific details of family stuff and all, but like what you, because maybe people listen in and they say like, they might discount, well, I don't know. I know someone who went to one of these places and it was fine type of anecdotal answer. And you were in them and then you went into counseling and have worked with teens. So what could you share for, that's that's like hands-on firsthand information that people can can like palpably feel like, oh, this is what, this is what's happening. She knows. Yeah. So it's kind of crazy because I was in both a juvenile detention center and a quote unquote treatment facility for behavioral issues. And the juvenile detention facility was just like jail. And honestly, I mean, we, everything was structured. The staff kind of left you alone. You were just in your cell and then you got to come out and play cards for a little bit, eat your meals. And we had gym every day. Like we had basketball. So like they left us alone and there was, I didn't really ever see any behavioral issues or anything like that. It was kind of, it, it wasn't ideal. You're away from your friends and family and obviously you're treated like a prisoner, but I don't remember anything traumatizing happening, happening there. I mean, there was definitely medical neglect. Like I hit my head on a wall playing basketball one day and I definitely had a concussion because I blacked out and I didn't know where I was and they were like, oh, you're faking it. And then I also, they had me, that medication I was talking about that was illegal to give to children. Mm-hmm. Um, you're supposed to be on 20, 20 milligrams as a grown adult. I was about 80 pounds. They had me on 60 milligrams, three times the amount oh, you're geez. supposed to give an adult. And they took it away from you cold turkey when it became, when they found out like that you weren't supposed to give the children. Like it was right when they black boxed it. And so they took it off of me without weaning me off. And I threw up every single day for 30 days straight. Every, every morning when I woke up, I was throwing up. So, you know, they didn't, they didn't try to figure out what's wrong. Didn't take me to doctor. They just accused me of being bulimic, made me sleep on the concrete floor 
um, with no blanket because that's a suicide risk. It was they give you like a piece of wool and in the bright light. So like there was definitely neglect there, but um, there wasn't the mental and emotional abuse, which I think. You know, we hear all the time about physical abuse, but emotional abuse can really do as much damage. And so um, at these treatment facilities, it was just, I mean, it was crazy. You you had no rights. You had no autonomy. And every single thing that you did was controlled. You're, and some of it, I mean, when you have a bunch of kids living together, it's understandable that you have to put time limits on showers and things like that. Sure. But they would go just so extreme with it. So, like, if you – so we basically had a point system, and I think you would get, like, 50 points a day was a perfect score. If you missed anything under 40 points a day, you would sit and face the wall the whole next day. If you missed a certain amount of points for the week, you would sit and face the wall for the whole next week. And – until you got your points, you could not get off of that. So you could lose 10 points for anything. One night I was in charge of cooking and I forgot to take bagels out of the freezer. And I didn't think that the bagels would be kept in the freezer. And so the whole next day I'm sitting and facing the wall. Um, if your showers were more than five minutes, you're sitting and facing the wall. If you accidentally talk when you're not supposed to or they duct tape like every few feet you had to say can I cross can I cross if you made one little mistake like that you're sitting and facing the wall not talking to anybody now to the average person I mean you might hear something like that and think it's not a big deal but like really put yourself in a position of being this teenager trying to figure out who you are and you're sitting and facing a wall not allowed to talk to other human beings for not just a day but this would turn into months There were kids that, you know, there was one girl there. She was hyperactive and like they would make up rules as they went. Harry Potter had just came out and she would talk with a British accent sometimes. And every time she did, they would make her sit and face the wall. And like this girl was not malicious or trying to be bad. She she had some impulse. This girl had been traumatized. I'm pretty sure she, you know, had fetal alcohol syndrome and all these things. And they're just torturing her whole time she was there she's sitting facing the wall not allowed to talk to anybody and um you know they would like I got there were multiple times where I got tackled and restrained for things that looking back I'm just like that's insane like one time I remember I I got upset about something and I crossed the piece of duct tape without asking and I got tackled and they stepped on my neck and I couldn't breathe and that was just one example I mean they're constantly restraining kids in situations that I mean I understand again you have a bunch of kids in one place you need to protect them from each other sometimes that's understandable that you could have certain ways of making sure that they can't kill somebody or physically assault somebody but when it's something as stupid as not asking to go to the other room and you're getting tackled that's that to me is just it's it's abusive and you know the mental and emotional abuse they would lie they would make up rules they would change them they would you would be working towards something working to getting out of there and then they would all of a sudden change what was going on and again to like test you to see if you could handle it just crazy stuff wow uh it's it's i have a bunch of things i could say but the 
first thought that pops into my mind is like sort of this mentality that if you have a hammer in your hand, everything looks like a nail. And these counselors, if they were given this power, they're going to use it, even if it's the most mundane thing, like someone speaking in a British accent, Uh, like as if that's a a cause for concern. And it makes me think that, that part of the system, whether these counselors were consciously aware of it, but part of the system is to break down people's individuality and, and that sense of, of, of playfulness and creativity and just teach them like extreme um, obedience and compliance where every few steps you have to ask permission to cross. I mean, what, what, what are many of these kids going to grow up into? Like they're going to be traumatized, but they're also going to be um, really good office and factory workers responding to a bell and following orders and working, you know, specific numbers of hours. It's, it's so dehumanizing at a time when kids are just trying to figure themselves out and you use the word torture. It, you know, not to overplay the hand, but when someone is forced to stare at, when a child is forced to stare at a wall for months the, the word torture is accurately used to describe that. Like it, it doesn't have to be Guantanamo Bay to, to fulfill that. It's, it's, it's horrifying. And then I would imagine that creating this environment then amongst the kids could create cliques and power dynamics where certain kids then try to, to exert power over other kids so, that, so they feel that they have some control or autonomy in their life. Yeah, absolutely. I've definitely seen that happen in different places. Um, the place I was at, you know, I think we really banded together. I think we all really cared for each other. And I think I got lucky in that aspect. I still talk to some of them today. Um, so it can go either way. Either the kids, you know, rely on each other or, yeah, clicks form and, and people, you know, because there's, of course, we had, like, I remember the one girl, like, she just made things miserable for everybody, you know. Um, but yeah, it does, you know, gangs start to form and things like that in some of these places. I could easily imagine that. I mean, it's it's almost as if it sounds almost as if they were trying to create that scenario where if the counselors didn't feel like discipline planning, they would have certain kids that would do the work for them. But I, f- I feel confident. I mean, you, you could... You could add more if you like. I feel confident that we've laid a foundation of what this system is. And I'm hoping that – now, I imagine that some listeners are aware of this because they themselves either were in such a facility or um, got tricked into sending with their children there, a cousin, a, a, a friend. So they might know a little bit about this. But I'm thinking that the majority of listeners are, are have learned a, a scary reality that's happening. But it's not – I don't want to just focus on that because I know that you have discussed and, and you sent me information about steps that could be taken. And and I know that I, I'm going to assume these experiences partially led to you becoming a counselor. And, and I've heard you say on another podcast that your initial and to me very logical approach initially would be, oh, I'm going to try and change the system from the inside and work within these places. And that that's a very tricky proposition for anyone because a system doesn't like to have someone come in from the inside and change it. But then you've also branched out then into other ideas. And the one that you spoke um, very articulately about was family-based therapy. So I want to give you room to talk about your journey to becoming a counselor, um, what, how you learned what might work, what might not work. And I am curious to know that 
when you work with children who've been through situations like this, do you feel a certain type of connection or an understanding with them? And perhaps you can see through their coping mechanisms more easily than someone who hadn't been through what you've been through. So feel free to pick any in any direction you want, but I want to focus more on how what how this inspired you to be uh, become a change maker and a helper and what you could inspire others to do in terms of, of now that they know about this system, what, what can we do? Yeah, sure. So um, you might need to remind me some of those okay. those <laughs> questions, but um, you know, I, I never really was in there thinking like, I'm going to do this someday and help kids. I kind of just was trying to get through life and didn't know what I was doing. And, you know, I went to beauty school and I tried different things and, um, I ended up taking some classes at a community college because I, it was cheaper for me to have health insurance if I was in school full time back then the rules were different. And, um, so I took a psychology class and my teacher approached me and she was like, Hey, like you, your brain works this way. Like you really understand material. Have you thought about doing this? And I was like, no, but okay. And I went and changed my major. <laughs> so I didn't have a major. I was like, oh, I guess I'll do that because I always loved kids. I always babysat from the time I was 11 years old. Um, babysat the whole neighborhood, but I had such a hard time in school. I never had the desire to be a teacher and I didn't really know how else you could work with kids. So I just started taking classes. And then when I graduated, it was basically like if you're in the psychology field, the only way that you can support yourself is if you go on to be a counselor, go to go to grad school. So I kind of just did it. It was kind of like a God thing that he just kind of led me down this path. And, um, you know, I blocked everything that happened out of my mind for so long. Like I was just, like I said, trying to get through the day. So um, it wasn't until I started working, I was working at a summer camp and, you know, the other counselors were great and really sweet to the kids, but like I, they would flock to me and tell me all these things. And I just started to realize like, I understand these kids on a different level that I don't think many people do. And I kind of started to make the connection and I had, you know, already, I was in grad school already for counseling and it started to really hit me that like, I have something that I can offer. This isn't just a career, you know? And, um, I, I don't want to make it sound like my whole life is dedicated to keeping kids out of this places because I work with all kinds of people, but I do have a special heart for that. And there was a time period where that was my entire job was keeping kids out of these places. And, um, you know, asking if I, I feel like a special sort of connection, it's hard because, you know, I, you, as a counselor, you don't want to self-disclose um, unless it's completely appropriate to do so. And so it's, it just depends on, you know, you can, you can tell the kids you understand and, and try to help them, but it comes down to the parents. The parents need to be the ones to make changes. And it's very hard to get parents to understand that. But I do think there are a lot of parents that they want to, they, they, as soon as you start to point some things out and it's not like you're pointing fingers, like you're the problem. But as soon as you say like, Hey, like I notice you struggle to have boundaries with your kids because you know, you love them so much and you want to give them everything, but look how they're treating you in return and let's make some changes. There are some parents that are very willing. So, um, 
it's I know I'm kind of going off there. No, but. no, 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 not at all. I just want to say I, I, I caught myself smiling through that entire monologue because it was I just love the way you weaved it together. And to know that that teacher that like good for that teacher who pulled you aside and took the time to personalize to you like, hey, I see something. I don't know if you're aware of it, but you might want to explore this because what a gift to receive from somebody that's like there's a different way to use your the power dynamic, like they're the teacher, you're the student, and they're not about exploiting you, they're about motivating you. So it started there. And then as you continued, I was like, this is such a beautiful um, trajectory that you, you just allowed yourself, like you were almost, like you said, divinely guided to some degree where you're just like, all right, this feels good. And it's all falling into place. And then when you're working with the kids, you feel like, oh, man, and everyone, not just kids, everyone. It's, it's just, I, I just appreciated every word you just said. Yeah. And I think that that's, you know, that's a good point about that. You know, it just took that one professor that I had because even in those places, you know, they were so horrible. I still remember there was this one staff and I actually reached out to her recently, sent her a letter, sent her a picture of the day. I have a picture of me and her the day I got out. Um, it was after my court hearing in the parking lot of the courthouse And I found that picture recently and I tracked her down, found her email and sent her a letter. And, you know, she was like, she just treated us like humans. She would, she would crack jokes with us. She would encourage us. She would like, she'd be the one if this girl was speaking in a British accent, should be telling her what to do in a British accent. (laughs) And the girl would listen to her. You know what I mean? Uh, Like she treated us like humans and people like that kind of keep you going and give you some hope. And I think to myself, if she was not there, I probably would have really had my spirit broken, but she was like a piece of life, a piece of light. You know what I mean? And like the, the teacher we had at the one place I was at, like the worst place I was and the teaching assistant, you know, there were times where she was pretty, like rude and controlling I'm not gonna say she was all great but she also let us be silly and she encouraged me you know I wrote all these like silly poems and stuff like that and she always encouraged it and they just they just treated us better than you know the people that just came in there to yell at us all day and abuse their power so I don't you know it's not that every single person working in these places are bad. There are some that are trying. I mean, I talked to that staff member. She's still working there. It's 20 some years later. Wow. Um, that's, that's, I just want to say, I just love, I didn't expect to go in this direction, but there's so many lessons like, like you uh, as a, you're an example of somebody who even when times are, are dark, you, to use your metaphor, you, you're looking for the light, like, and even in a place where you could wind up facing a wall, literally staring into the dark, when you encounter a teacher or a counselor that is going to treat you a certain way and encourage some spontaneity and creativity, like you're guided to them. And then now you're doing that. And I think anyone listening, you don't have to be a teacher or a psychologist to do that. Like it's, it's such, it's such a, it really is a simple thing that everyone could do when they encounter someone and they feel it, maybe they have a thought like, Oh, that person is so this, whatever this is, but maybe they feel because of the social contract, I just can't go over and tell them, Hey, you know, I really enjoyed watching you do that thing. And 
you know, as long as it's appropriate, that we should be doing that because those moments um, carry people. And you're just you just gave such powerful examples of that. And I, I did like I said, I didn't expect to go in this direction, but I found it to be really, really inspiring and motivating. And and um, perhaps it's connected to. But the one other thing I wanted to make sure we touch on. Um, because you mentioned how it's important to get the family involved. And in my lifetime, I've actually known a fair amount of people who've worked here in New York City in the Department of Education as physical therapists, occupational therapists, psychologists, speech therapists, and they all work as a team that that they bring, they try and bring the parents in and try to explain how to carry over the care at home because the parents are with them much more. So is that something along the lines of what you talk about as family-based therapy, where someone like you can work with a child, a teenager, or even the parents, and but then encourage this collective effort in all the time between the, that time and the next session. Yeah. So basically what, what uh, family-based therapy is, you have a master's level and a bachelor's level clinician. And they go into the home two to three times per week. So they're in the house or in the school or, you know, wherever the kid is. Even if the kid's sent away to a drug rehab or something like that, they're both working with the family and working with the kid. And the whole idea is to keep the kids out of places like this or to get them back home if they were sent somewhere. And the whole idea is to restructure the family because – you know, a lot of these families, they just don't have the tools or they don't have the understanding, especially if the kid does have some mental health issues. That's a very difficult thing to deal with. So um, it all the idea is like, let's get the parents empowered and learning how to deal with these kids so that they can get us out of their homes, so that they don't need all these services and they don't need to be separated their, from their kids and stuff like that. So it's very intense therapy. And the whole model is restructuring the family. So a lot of times what happens, it's one of two things. Either the parents are authoritarians, which means that they're, you know, best way I could put it is tyrants. Like you do what I say, you don't ask any questions. There's no room for error. Or the parents are passive. Their kids are running the house. The kids are making the rules. There's no boundaries. There's no discipline. So we find that happy and medium of an authoritative parent, which explains to the kids, this is why we don't do this. They use natural consequences. So for example, the kid leaves their clothes in the laundry basket and they're all wrinkled. Okay, you're wearing wrinkly clothes to school and everyone's going to make fun of you. Not, you know, authoritarian parent would say, well, you, you know, I don't know what they'd do, but it wouldn't go like that. They'd probably hit them, ground that, like scream at them. So it's letting kids suffer consequences and it's teaching them how to discipline. That's what a lot of people, you know, we talk all the time. Kids today are soft. They're not disciplined. Sometimes they're disciplined too harshly. Sometimes they're not disciplined at all. Or people think that discipline is physical, but you can discipline kids with, again, these natural consequences, or, you know, you can, you can have them work towards things and stuff like that. So I think that there's just so many skills that we're not taught that doesn't make you a bad parent because you don't have them, but you do need to learn. Absolutely. I, it's, it, people, um, 
and I, I don't mean this in a harsh manner, but people often become parents unconsciously. It's something that people do. And meanwhile, you, there's so many skills that you need to develop to, to even get to the point where you just talked about where, you know, not relatively recently, I was walking down the street and it was kind of a rainy, damp day. And there was a woman with her very young daughter who was wearing an outfit that wasn't fully appropriate for the weather. And I could tell from the conversation that the little girl insisted on wearing that. And there was a real teaching moment there where it's like, you see, sometimes when I'm suggesting the raincoat, this is why, because she's like, mommy, I'm cold. And I, I, I was impressed with that thinking like, all right, she didn't call him stupid or tell her what I say goes. It's like, okay, if you think this is the right thing, let's try it. And the next time around, I'm going to Get, I'm going to gamble that that kid has a different perspective on how to dress for certain weather. So that that, that just sounds really, really um, uh, valuable. And the other point that you made where there's no shame in being a parent or anyone and not having everything figured out. You know, that's part of why therapy exists, where you go and say, I feel stuck here. Or maybe you don't even recognize you feel stuck, but you don't even know where it is. And you need to work out where this where this gap is, where you might be needing to develop some skills. And and if parents could get that mentality that that um, it's not a reflection on them, it's but the, the greatest thing they could do is to ask for guidance and it would be we would a big chunk of this system we described would be put out of business because the it would it would be stopped in the home via something like family based therapy now um it's a big segue here but before we wrap up i didn't i always like to find out something about the guest that makes them more than just this topic. Like if someone listens to this podcast in, in their mind, it might be like, Oh, Monica, she's the trouble teen woman. But obviously we're all more than any one thing. And I do know from your Twitter account and hearing on other podcasts that you are doing or working towards doing stand-up comedy. So could you tell us a little bit about that before we wrap up? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I would like to add one more thing about of this course. topic, if that's cool at the end. Absolutely. So, yeah, I just started doing stand-up comedy. I was on an improv team for a few years until COVID shut everything down. So I've been trying stand-up comedy. I also um, write some comedy music sometimes. Um, so yeah, that's it's funny because that's how a lot of people know me. And then they saw my last interview and they're like, what? <laughs> I never saw you be serious. I'm like, yeah, I don't like to be. But, Absolutely. Um, it sounds like a person, perfect yin and yang type of thing where you just, you have balance in your life. Like, you know, you, you can laugh and you could be serious. Guess what? Like, that's okay. Yeah. And I think, you know, laughter is the best medicine. And that's what I always, I think that's what Sweet. makes me a therapist that people enjoy is, I use jokes to get them to understand things. Um, but the one thing I did want to add in, and I think that this, this is the best advice I have for dealing with teenagers. You both want to not take them seriously and you want to take them seriously. So if a kid comes to you and they're like, I want to be a rapper when I grow up, and you could sit there and argue like, you're not going to be a rapper. You're not going to make money. There's so many other people that do that. You're not even good, blah, blah, blah. They're going to resent you and they're going to be frustrated. Kid comes and tells you they want to be a rapper, say, okay, then I want you to practice every day for a half hour. Like you have to. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like support them. And chances are after a week, they're going to be like, I don't want to be a rapper anymore. I want to do this. But I see parents get so caught up. Kids, kids are just learning to think abstractly and they think very concretely and they don't understand the world. But we try to beat it in their head through lectures and they don't get that. This is again where where the um, 
the natural consequences come in. Let them let them have these crazy ideas. I know people that fight with their kids because their kids are like, when I turn 18, I'm getting an apartment. They're like, you don't know what that costs. Blah, blah, blah. Just be like, okay. Chances are they turn 18, they don't go get an apartment. Because yep. <laughs> like you have to just, just let them figure things out. It's not the end of the world if a kid comes to you and says some crazy thing they're going to do because chances are it's not going to work out. So I think that if you can apply that to other conversations that you have, I think it can make you a very successful parent. Amen. That sounds wonderful. Really. It's, it's, it's just giving them space and giving them validation because who's to say that someone as a parent that is twice the kid's age has figured it out. Or maybe you'd think sometimes a parent who maybe wanted to do something creative but did the practical thing to get the steady paycheck, you don't want you, you gotta check yourself to make sure you're not acting out of resentment if your child says, I want to have a creative life. Like there's it, it makes sense to say make sure you make a living, but it doesn't, as you said, it doesn't make sense to shoot them down because it'll only it'll just screw up your dynamic and probably then make them make them cling to it or maybe not come to you next time when they have an idea. So I love that idea. And who knows if you tell them to be practice rapping a half hour every day, by the end of a month, they might be awesome at it. You'd be like, Oh, <laughs> you might get a record deal. <laughs> You're like, Holy shit. I'm glad we encouraged this. But like you said, the odds are a month, it'll be something else. And and that's part of being a kid. That's awesome. Like you want to have a million ideas. So thank you for, for, for sharing that, that suggestion. And thank you for, for sharing your information. I mean, it, it's, it's, um, it's just so so valuable when someone has been through something that is clearly traumatic and has resolved that trauma, processed that trauma, and come out in a place where you can really be a guide. I feel like that's that's how I feel when I'm talking to you. Like you can, like you're guiding people. You're guiding them. Not you're not telling them what to do, but you're pointing them in new directions and giving them suggestions that perhaps they've never heard before. And what what a fantastic role to play in life. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Oh, you're most welcome. And thank you for your time. Um, I I will put your Twitter um, in the um, show notes. Is there anything else you want me to, to let people know about? Um, I'd prefer actually put my TikTok in there. I'm trying to get my, you know, okay. like everyone's you... against TikTok, but I'm trying to get my, <laughs> my monologues up there. <laughs> Okay, so could you send me that link and I'll definitely include it without yeah, a doubt. absolutely. All right, Monica, thank you for making time to talk. And more importantly, thank you for all you do in this world. I'm, I'm, it's been a pleasure to just getting to know you a little bit. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'll be back with some closing thoughts after one more word from our sponsor. Hey, Mickey Z again. I trust you're enjoying this episode. And if so, I would really, really appreciate it if you would become a paid subscriber for just $5 a month, less than 17 cents a day. You can support this Substack and this podcast. Your help is essential and it's crucial. And it's you who keeps this project going and growing. So thank you for listening. Thank you in advance for becoming a paid subscriber. And please spread the word. And while you're at it, please check the show notes for a link to a really kick-ass post-woke t-shirt. The sales have been going up. People are out there showing off what their favorite podcast is. And now it's time for you to join the team. 
So once again, thank you in advance, and let's get back to the show. As we wrap up episode number 64 of Post Woke, I want to briefly touch on two parallel themes that Monica highlighted. The first being that if you are in a position to inspire, motivate, or encourage someone, grab that opportunity with both hands and make it happen because you will not only help that person, and you know, as Monica's story highlights, you may help countless people that you never even know about. Secondly, if you're the one looking for motivation, inspiration, and encouragement, keep your eyes and ears open. Pay attention. There are people in your life or people about to enter your life who can offer that wisdom and guidance in a way that you would never, ever imagined in the past. And just the key here is just awareness and openness. Look for these opportunities to interact with people in a way that plant seeds to create a more positive and nurturing society. And the best way to not miss these opportunities is to always keep your guard up.